baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Rebecca Corral. Our summer vacations are over. The kids are back in school and another Labor Day is upon us. It's the weekend for one more barbecue and for many, a time to pause and reflect on the country's workforce and the national state of labor organized or not. If the 30s, 40s and 50s were a time of great strides for union workers, what have the first and second decades of the new millennium meant for labor? Well, it's been a hard time for labor unions. The legal structure in the United States was set up to work in a situation where employers and workers agreed that they wanted unions to represent the workers and it helped to make the workplace work more smoothly. But over over the decades, employers decided that they really didn't want unions and got very aggressive in fighting unions and preventing them from organizing workers at workplaces. And the legal structure just isn't set up to work in that more adversarial environment. And union membership has gradually fallen as as employers have more aggressively fought unions. Our guest on KCBS In-Depth is Jesse Rothstein, professor of public policy and economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Rothstein is also the director of the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment, the co-director of the California Policy Lab, and the co-director of the Opportunity Lab. He previously served as a chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor and as senior economist with the Council of Economic Advisors, executive office of the president, both in the Obama administration. I think it's a change in the culture that it used to be that people who headed up large, large uh, employers, large companies, thought that they had duties to to their communities, to their workers, to, to various stakeholders. And there was a change in the norm where everybody started to think that their job was solely to maximize profits for shareholders. And if you're trying to maximize profits for shareholders, you can persuade yourself that that taking as much as you can out of out of the wage bill is the best way to do that. And you get more aggressive about fighting anything that will cause wages to go up. And, and I know today a, a lot of corporations feel that union, some of the union rules are constraints. They don't necessarily view them as helpful. I think they can be sometimes uh, a little bit of a constraint. I think that these are rules that are agreed to in bargaining. And if, if if you bargain with the union, you can trade off things that are important to you as the employer and things that are important to the workers as workers. And if you agree to the rules rather than, than providing salary increases, it must not be that bad for you. Have we seen any gains in the past 18 years on the labor front? So we've started to see in the last couple of years that we're finally get, starting to see a tighter labor market. And we're start, we're, we've seen some indications that particularly at the bottom end of the wage distribution that wages are starting to go up at last. All right. So th- they still are pretty stalled out, yes? They're, they've been pretty stalled out for most workers, but for the lowest paid workers, there have been some increases in the last few years. Is this because of mandated minimum wages? That seems to be a part of the story, yeah, that, that minimum wage increases have, have brought up that bottom. And it's in the context of a tight, a tight labor market where, people, where employers can afford to pay a little bit more. Over the decades, have wages ever stalled out as much as they are now? 
I think they've been generally stalled for most of the last four decades uh, for most workers. They, they, there have been some temporary increases. So the late 90s was very good for, for workers. But other than that, with that exception, for most of the last four decades, wages haven't really gone much of anywhere. So we can't talk about stagnating wages without focusing on teachers. Why don't we pay our teachers a wage commensurate with their role in society? I mean, our future rests on their shoulders, but they're not held in the same high regard as teachers in places like Japan or Norway? That's a big question and a good question. I don't know that I completely know the answer to it. We have generally in this country underinvested in in services provided by the public sector, and we've we've tended to go for, for relatively low salary arrangements with them, and then we get less good people into those jobs because we're not paying enough to attract the very best college graduates. And then people think that the teachers aren't very good and they and they don't want to pay them as very much. And you get this cycle where we wind up in the low salary situation. And here in the Bay Area, it's especially troublesome because it's hard enough to find a place you can afford at a good salary, much less a teacher's salary. Housing costs have become an enormous problem in the Bay Area for Almost every job, teachers are, run, are one of them. It's just very hard to live on any, anything resembling a middle-class salary in the Bay Area. Teachers have begun calling out journalists for framing as heartwarming these stories about the communities that hold food drives for teachers or parents who band together to help subsidize the rent of a beloved teacher who's been sleeping in her car. They say we need to stop framing these as uplifting stories and what they really are is an indictment of the system as it exists today. So it's uplifting when people get together to take care of somebody who needs help. There's no question about that. It's a, it's a nice thing that people do, and it's great. It's a tragedy that we're setting up a system in which, people, in which teachers who have stable jobs and, and professional high-skill jobs are paid so little that, that they wind up in that situation. We need to figure out ways to make, that, make people not need that level of charity. These are, these are successes in our society. Full disclosure, I should say, my daughter is a fourth grade teacher, so right. I, I get an earful at home you know, when I see her. There's a distinct hostility for, for teachers who demand higher wages and better working conditions. If we look at the invective that's been hurled at teachers who walked out in Oklahoma last year and the anger directed at teachers who, in a stalemate over contract talks with their district, have decided to teach the school day but not put in any extra time for free to coach sports or direct the school play in the late afternoon. There's this sense that they should be doing those things out of the goodness of their hearts because it's for the kids. It is for the kids. We have often approached the decision about how much to pay teachers on an assumption that they only work a part of the year and, and the days aren't that long and therefore they can take other jobs and that, they, that it, if we count on those other jobs and the money they make from those other jobs to make ends meet, then they're not going to have time available for the extra things we'd like them to do. You were involved in the recent Supreme Court case on whether mandatory union dues violate First Amendment rights. Explain the danger of the free rider problem. Sure. So this this case uh, was about public sector workers, so workers who work for, for the government. And the way labor law works in the United States, when a union represents workers, the union is required to represent all of the workers in the workplace, not just the members. So some workers may be members of the union and pay dues. Other workers can opt out of, of membership. The the union is required to work just as hard to represent the ones who don't who aren't members as the ones who are members. That imposes costs. It's costly to represent workers, and so uh, the way the way many states have set this up is that the workers who don't choose to join the union have to pay the cost of representing them. They don't have to pay anything beyond the cost of representing them. They don't have to pay for any other activities that the union undertakes, but they have to pay the costs of the union representing them. 
The Supreme Court has said that that's illegal, that that's, for, that's violating those workers' free speech rights to require them to pay those costs. But if under that rule, it's hard to see how you can sustain the, the rule that goes with it, which is that the unions are required to represent those workers anyway. You wind up with this incentive for workers to decide they're not going to pay anything because they get all of the benefits and none of the costs. So where do we go from here? It's a good question. Um, we're, I think you're see, seeing some exploration in different places of different models that might might uh, create ways for, for the unions to, to cover their costs when, uh, despite this ruling. You might, you're also looking at um, potentially bigger changes in the structure of union representation. I think people are starting to question that exclusive, rep- exclusive representation rule that the, that the union is required to represent even, even the non-member workers. Um, and you're seeing unions work very hard to to articulate to the to the workers the value that they get from the union and, and try to persuade them that that it's re- it's worth making this these payments. Could there be a, a valuable outcome from that? There is a valuable outcome that the that some unions had not put as much effort as they ought to have in communicating with their members, and this is this is upping the pressure on them to do that. And I think that will be that will be helpful. It's not, I think, on net, the outcome is negative, but that that is a positive outcome. So let's talk about the wage gap. The CEOs of American corporations have salaries, what, 600 times higher than the median wage for the company's workers. That gap is so much smaller in other nations. We've gotten into a situation where there's a total disconnect between the fortunes of the stakeholders of a firm and the fortunes of the of the executives and literal fortunes of the executives. It's a problem. It can't be that all of the benefits of increasing productivity go to executives, but we've got broken governance structures that make it that make it possible for executives to be on each other's boards and pay each other a lot. And we have a, a lot of other institutions that make it easier and easier for employer for the employers to avoid passing on the benefits of productivity growth to their workers. Pass it on to the shareholders. They pass exactly. Some, although some of it they keep for themselves and enormous salaries. You know, corporate corporate leaders say they won't be able to hire the best and the brightest if they don't compensate them lavishly. Is that legit? It's hard to believe that firms would have trouble attracting good talent for only $100 million a year or half of what they're currently paying their CEOs. Companies that take seriously the need to support their workers have better relationships with their workers, and that can translate into better productivity. It's a general problem that we've had a number of institutions in this country that, that used to support a more communal attitude towards everybody benefits when the, when the country gets wealthier, and those institutions have gradually eroded. And as a result, we're, we're having a harder time and harder time making sure that the average American shares from the benefits of, of increasing wealth. You know, you could be accused of being a socialist with talk like that. Perhaps, but I don't think it's unreasonable to think that when a company becomes more productive, that comes as a result of the workers working harder and working better, and that we should all be getting wealthier as the country gets wealthier. Our guest on KCBS In-Depth is Jesse Rothstein, professor of public policy and economics at UC Berkeley. I'm Rebecca Corral. It's become a growing and growing problem that, that it's hard to support consumption in this country because wages have stagnated for so long. So much of the of the income in the country is going to the to people who already have a lot of money, and they don't need to spend more. And so, if you if they get a little bit more money, they don't spend very much of it, and that and then consumption 
wags. You know, this brings us to Amazon in a way. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Follow my bouncing ball anyway. We we love our Amazon bargains, but is it sustainable? I mean, how long can employees withstand some of what we've seen taking place in, in these fulfillment centers for the workers? I think that there are a lot of things that are great about the Amazon model, and there's lots of improvements in business practices that, that make Amazon possible and make us all better off. But I think we would get almost all of the benefits from Amazon if it paid its workers a living wage as well. We need to change our labor laws to make it possible for workers to organize unions when they want them, to make it harder for companies to decide that they are going to fire workers who, who begin to start the process of organizing a union. We need to change our tax laws to discourage firms from taking all the profits and and paying very, very low wages. I think there's a, a range of policies that would that would shift us out of this of this situation. And and there's legislation to do that. I mean, haven't they done this in Portland with taxes? There have been various various efforts in lots of places, and I think there are there are a lot of models to to follow on. Does the gig economy threaten the American workforce, do you think? Again, like Amazon, I think many of the gig economy companies are really bringing something new and innovative into into our economy, and I think that's that's a great thing. The, the ability to call a car to a location that's far away from traditional routes is a is a real improvement. Uh, but there's nothing about that improvement or about that business model that requires uh, not paying the workers. Uh, that you could pay workers as employees, you could pay the taxes that are owed on those workers, and all of that would be totally consistent with running a gig-type business. It's this new growing sector. We don't really understand very much about, about who it is that's working in the gig economy or about how much money they're, they're actually getting out of it, and we need to do a lot more to, to understand it. But we also need to do more to, to ensure that, that when we have rules that are designed to protect workers, that those rules are followed. And, and that includes rules like when, when somebody is an employee, they're, they're paid as an employee and, and taxes are collected and they, are, they benefit from unemployment insurance and workers' comp and other, other policies that, that are available to, to employees but aren't available to workers who are paid as independent contractors. There's such a Wild West feel to the gig economy right now, and I'm thinking specifically of ride-hailing services. Yes. And Labor isn't the only place where we've seen problems. I mean, we see people, you know, picking up passengers and sexually assaulting them. I mean, there's just, it's a free-for-all. Right. But is that the way it works? You start a new industry, it's disruptive, the old rules don't apply, certain rights get violated until it reaches a tipping point and a grown-up steps in with perhaps legislation to bring laws, to set best practices, to put an equitable structure into place? So this is something that... that is not the norm. Often you have a new idea that for a new business and you figure out a way to, to build that business within the existing rules. And you might do things differently than other businesses, but you don't ignore the rules that those other businesses are, are living by. There's been a tendency in the last few years or even longer for, for new companies to come in and decide that their business model is going to be ignoring the rules. Um, and there are, again, many innovative aspects of these companies that we want to be able to figure out ways to integrate those, but they don't require ignoring the rules. If, if the ideas are so good, then they should be able to, to build the businesses under the rules that apply to everyone else. But we sort of worship them. You know, they, they're the disruptors. They're cutting edge. It's true, but we disru- there's disruption within the framework that we've set up, and then there's disruption that ignores the rules. And in other contexts, if somebody decides that they're going to 
disrupt things by just taking the food they want without paying for it. We don't we don't laud them for it. We're the new disruptors. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. What about companies like fast food restaurants where workers can't count on a regular schedule? The workers are sent home unpaid if business isn't what they expected on any particular morning. And we're not talking about mom and pop cafes. Places like Starbucks have done this sort of on-demand scheduling. You know, yeah. you're scheduled that day to work eight to noon and get sent home because business just wasn't that good that morning. It's it's true. It's as companies have computerized and gotten better at wringing every last uh, bit of slack out of their businesses, you wind up with companies telling workers, you need to be on call for lots of hours, even though we're not going to actually hire you for many of them. And that's very hard for workers. And and again, it's it contributes to this, making it harder to, to make ends meet for workers. It's a little bit hard to see how any of this is going to improve right now. Well, there are some optimistic signs, I think. One is that we, we tend to see really big gains when the, when the economy is humming along and the labor market is tight. And for the first time in 20 years, almost 20 years, we're starting to see a really tight labor market. And you'll see that employers, if the, if the choice is offer a job that doesn't pay very much and treats workers badly and not be able to find anyone or start treating the workers a bit better and be able to fill the job, you'll start to see improvements in, in job quality and in, in pay. And I think that's something we need and we've fallen way behind and, and it will be very helpful. I think we're also starting to see recognition in the political system that this is a big problem. The continuing erosion of living standards for, for middle-class families is something that we've got to fix and we've got to look at ways of changing our institutions to try to address that. I think the the fight over trade policy that's going on right now is a really misguided way to address it, but it, it reflects a, a agreement among the among the political class that this is a problem and that, that big changes in, in our traditional practices are needed to fix this problem. We hear a lot from the chief executive about helping the workers, helping the steel workers and the coal workers. But is the political climate in Washington right now one that will help workers? Absolutely not. Nothing this administration has done has has done anything to help workers, and most things have have gone the other direction. They passed a tax bill that, rather than cut taxes for for regular workers, raised taxes for many families in order to dramatically cut taxes for the very richest. the The trade policy things are going to hurt workers in in traditional manufacturing with really no benefit for for anyone else. I think there are a range of policies that they've implemented that they may have described as helping workers, but are going to have the opposite effect. It seems like almost every day I'm reporting a story about shrinking unemployment. But are we interpreting the numbers accurately? Is this really a bonanza for workers? Now you're asking me to put my nerd hat on and start to <laughs> dig into the data. It's a real question right now how how much to trust the unemployment rate. It It is historically low right now, lower than other indicators of the labor market seem to indicate. And so it, it there's, I think... There's good reason to think that the, the unemployment rate is misleading about just how tight the labor market is. The labor market is clearly tighter than it was two or three or four years ago, but I don't think it's quite as tight as the unemployment rate suggests. And I think we still have room to, to, get, to get the economy moving on even a little bit faster and, and get more tightness in the labor market. And, and I wonder how well off we are if a, a mother has to hold two or three part-time minimum wage jobs just to pay the rent. I mean, is is this an echo of the Great Recession? It is. It took us... So it's only in the last year or so that you could even begin to think that the, the, the labor market had recovered from the Great Recession. Up until very recently, it was still quite clear that we were still in the hole and hadn't dug out of it. Now we're close to digging out of it. 
but there's a lot of lost years to make up and we've got to we've got to keep the the economy humming along for for a while longer to start to make up that difference and start to see the widespread availability of jobs and increasing pay that will that will then translate into increasing living standards for workers we have this huge wage inequality in this country the 1% the 99% is this dangerous i think it's very dangerous i think it's it's eroding the sense that we're, there's a common purpose in this country. I think it's eroding the sense that, that the things that are good for one group of people are good for another group of people. There used to be an attitude that what's good for General Motors is good for America. Now what's good for General Motors is good for the CEO of General Motors and not so good for anyone else. And that's that's a really dangerous situation for this country. And I think I think we're going we're, we're gonna to need to figure out policies to to ensure that we all we all grow together. Our guest on KCBS In-Depth is UC Berkeley Professor of Public Policy and Economics, Jesse Rothstein. Professor Rothstein served as chief economist in the U.S. Department of Labor in 2010. I'm Rebecca Corral. What has history taught us about what happens to a society when the 1% are vastly richer than everybody else? Well, the last time we saw this kind of growth and inequality in this country was the 1920s. And then we had the Great, Recession, the Great Depression. And the stock market crashed, and the the one percent lost a lot of their their wealth, and we had a long Great Depression. And what came out of that was a lot of changes in our institutions that that ensured more broadly shared prosperity. That was when we saw the big growth in unions to to make sure that workers benefited from from some of the the wealth that was was there. And then we had a golden era after we got out of the Great Depression, where the country grew faster than it had grown. It's grown any time since. When the gains from that growth were were broadly shared, when living standards went up and up and up, and uh, a lot of the things that we kind of rely on now came out of, of that era. So I think there is some hope that you convert this growing inequality into into more broadly shared prosperity. But it certainly wasn't an easy path to get from one to the other last time, and I hope we can make it easier this time. Right. This makes me think of wildfire. You know, for a forest, it burns down and then it's able to have regrowth. Do we need a depression? Do we need an economic fire? I hope not. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. I think I think we haven't we have not been successful in the last 20 years of, of having recognized that we have this problem of growing and growing inequality of being able to figure out about ways to, to address it. Do you think we're going that direction? I, I I couldn't tell you. I think I think we're going. We're, somehow this can't continue. It has to somehow things have to change. And I think there's there are different ways for it to change. And I, I wish I knew which way we'd get there. I think there are there are less destructive ways of of it changing than a wildfire. And I think we're you're starting to see recognition even among the one percent that it can't be good for them to grow so far ahead of everyone else. I guess you have to be a, a, an optimist in your line of work. You can't do public policy in, at this moment in history and not think that there's chances of getting to somewhat, to better policy development processes in a few years. You know, people are working longer, not everybody, but some people uh, partly out of necessity. They need money. They can't retire. And also because they, they don't want to retire. Some people want to continue to be vital contributors and they feel like working is one way to do that. Is this significant enough to have a... a, a shaping effect on the workforce? So I think it definitely means that there are a lot more people who are who are working really in jobs that they're, are hard for them to do at their ages um, and they're continuing to do them because they need to do them. 
Um, it's a it's bad for the people. We we ought to deserve a a happy and relaxing retirement after working our whole whole careers, and we ought to set up institutions that allow people to do that. Um, I don't know. I don't. It can't be good for for employers either. That workers who are pushing themselves beyond their bodies' capacities to to keep in the workforce. Let's talk a little bit about employment among the formerly incarcerated. We went through a period of really aggressive incarceration. And so very large shares of the population compared to any historical or, or international norm uh, have, have some, some time in jail on their record. And it can't, we've got to figure out ways to, to reintegrate people into society that many of the people who were put in jail should be, aren't, aren't people who need to be locked away for the rest of their lives. We need to reintegrate them into society. But if there's no way for them to get jobs, then then we're we're really telling them that their only option is to is to stay at the margins of society, and that can't be good for anyone. A tighter labor market might help. It certainly will help. Uh, you again in the late '90s when the labor market was tight, you saw employers throwing out their rules against hiring ex uh, ex felons because they need workers. Is there a way to change the way the world works so that that the relationship between companies and unions is not adversarial? There are definitely systems that are less adversarial than we have now. It's become enormously adversarial, and it doesn't have to be. I think there are many benefits that, that firms have from from unions that represent the workers and can help to identify problems in the workforce and help to work with management to make the company more, more productive. Uh, and so it's certainly possible to have a less adversarial relationship. You can't have that when the firms see their top priority is getting rid of the union. Where have you seen these working systems? There are many examples. I'll just mention one. In Germany, the large corporations typically have worker representation on the boards. If the board of the corporation has worker representation, then they're not going to be aggressive in trying to prevent workers from being represented. Is anybody doing that here? There's been discussion of trying to, to shift in that direction here. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren from Massachusetts, had a proposal that she released last week that, that moves in that direction, although it doesn't do it exactly the way the German model does. What other sorts of things have you seen in other countries where, where the system works, in your opinion, a lot better? Well, I think there are – one thing you see is that the there's – in many other countries, it would be unheard of for a CEO to make anywhere near as much money as CEOs here commonly make. And that's partly cultural norms. I think to some extent the CEOs are marking themselves against their peers and they think, well, well, my other CEO, my friend CEOs are making a lot of money and therefore I need a lot of money. And if and we can potentially shift the norms to to an environment where they're still very well compensated, but it's not quite as obscene as it is now. That's one thing that contributes to that in many places is high tax rates on on very high levels of income. If if giving yourself another million dollars means that you're going to pay most of that in taxes, then maybe you don't work so hard to, to give yourself another million dollars and you put that back into the, into the company. There's a number of important historic gaps in this country uh, that have been persistent for a long time. Some of those reflect differences in the education systems that are available to people and the quality of, the, of education that's available to people. And some of them reflect other factors. Sometimes there's discrimination in the labor market. Sometimes it has to do with how closely tied to the labor market people are. They're all problems, and I think I think we need to to make progress on making sure that 
everyone in, in America has access to, to the skills they would need to, to get good jobs and then to the jobs that, that reward them for those skills. So as we head out for one last weekend away or barbecue with our friends, what can we keep in mind about Labor Day? It's a day that we've traditionally used to recognize people who work really hard for, for our economy, and that's what, what, what's built the wealth of this country, and it's important to recognize that. Thank you for coming in to talk to us today. Our guest on KCBS In-Depth has been Jesse Rothstein, Professor of Public Policy and Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm Rebecca Corral. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.